it's easier to grow existing customers than it is to find new ones. We have to do both. Having said that, focus on your top performing customers right now. Whatever data you look at, understand who your best customers are, why all the whys are the best customers, how did they become a great customer, how did you grow them, how do you continue to grow them, and then you can begin to mirror that with some of your customers who are not tier one, but maybe tier two. Welcome to episode number 71 of the Balancing Act podcast. I'm Andy Tempty. Today, we've got Brian Kibbe joining us as the second guest in our mini-series on the importance of building the skill of data literacy in individuals and in teams. Brian is the former CEO of Modern Campus and Two Ventures and Newton. He has a deep background in education publishing and currently serves as chairman of the board at Libsyn and a whole bunch of other uh, uh, board uh, positions. So thanks for sharing your talents and insights with us today, Brian. Sure, Brian. Thanks for inviting me, Andy. I follow you. I've enjoyed your work um, in a lot of different places for a long time. So this will be fun. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, it's going to be a great, it's going to be a great show for our listeners. As we always do on this show, before we get started, would you please uh, tell our listeners your story? Sure. My, my short my short version, I grew up in the south side of Chicago. I joined the Army at 17. Uh, after failing the ACT, uh, we had uh, a lot of fun in our home and a lot of everything, but education was not necessarily emphasized in my home. I uh, joined the Army, went to community college at night, kept learning and growing for the rest of my life, started my own business out of college for a few years, and I started with in sales with McGraw-Hill kept growing, learning, raising my hand, and moving up through starting in marketing. And then I ended up in a place where I've worked for uh, large public companies. I've worked at the high levels for private equity-backed companies, VC-backed companies. And I also ran one of the largest privately held transportation companies in the U.S. called MB Transportation, which is one of the reasons today I spend a lot of my time outside of ed tech And I spent a lot of time in the intersection of energy and transportation. So short version is I grew up in the South Side, kept learning and growing. Still am today. I'm 57 and still learning something new every single day. And and, uh, what I try to do with my life is help others to uh, think about doing the same for themselves. That's wonderful, Brian. What I what really struck me in that is you know, you you kept raising your hand, and I think that's a message that uh, more of us need to send uh, to really all generations. Just keep raising your hand, keep putting yourself out there. Uh, so you know, if you had to pick one event in your life in that whole story that just put rocket boosters. Uh, under your career, what what would that be? I'll say it's this notion of raising your hand. I'll give you I'll give you a specific example, and I'll tell you something about what happened yesterday. So, I was interviewing a, a sales development rep for um, is in, a really fascinating company called Terawatt. It's one of the most interesting energy infrastructure companies in the world that just raised uh, over a billion dollar A round. So, as a young man named Cam, we're going to offer him the job. Really talented young man, and he asked the same question. He said, "What advice do you have for me?" And I say, "It's the same advice that I." offer senior executives. It's the same advice I give myself every day. And I said, Cam, raise your hand, raise your hand, raise your hand, raise your hand, raise your hand for the rest of your life. Raise your hand. People always say, how do I get promoted? Well, 
Just because you have good numbers or you're doing good work doesn't mean that the boss or everyone knows that you exist. So raise your hand for hard assignments, raise your hand for promotions, raise your hand in my case, early days. Back to your question is, I just raise my hands oftentimes for, always actually, for where I thought I could make the biggest difference. So I started in sales from McGraw-Hill. The natural progression in educational technology companies is almost everyone starts in sales and then they pick an early path, whether it's marketing or sales management or product. In my case, I said, well, you know what? Everyone wanted to go into product and fewer really wanted to go into marketing and fewer still wanted to take the lists that I went for because no one wanted it. And so I just raised my hands for oftentimes the jobs president's jobs even that people didn't want or turn down. And I said, you know what? I'll do something with that. So I just raised my hand. And that's what I encourage everyone to do. And people think, oh, that's pretty basic. Doesn't everyone do that? The answer is almost no one does. Yeah, Almost no one does. When we were talking a moment ago with your son, Nick, who's a, who's a, who's a musician, and my daughter's at the Berkeley College of Music, and I said, 99% of these kids, um, uh, Kate's her name, at the Berkeley College of Music are waiting to be discovered, have no specific plan. She goes, that's not true. And I said, well, what's your plan? Are you at auditions every day? Your career's already started because you're at the Berkeley College of Music. I started going into it. She goes, oh, you're right. Are you raising your hand every day, Kate? And you have me as a coach, and I mean that. I'm pretty good at it. She goes, right. uh. You know, so my point is, you got to raise your hand. And that's yeah. early days for me. It was just raising my hand for a marketing job that no one wanted. Yeah, my uh, one of my uh, major mentors in my life, a guy named Roger Lighthold, who's no longer with us. You know, he 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 had this phrase, Andy. It never hurts to ask. And you know, some sometimes you, you didn't get what you asked for, but uh, you you don't ask, you don't get. Uh, and I, I think that goes right along well, with your you raise know, the hand. Um, I've had the good fortune to. Uh, directly and indirectly hire thousands of people, mostly sales leaders, sales people, sales district managers, regional managers, vice presidents, and even and chief sales officers. And when you're working with salespeople, people people hate to hear the word no, but in sales, that's what you get every day. You need to understand how to listen to customers. And when you get the no's, you have to find a way around that. So oftentimes people don't raise their hands because they think, I don't want the bad answer. Right. I don't want no. I don't want rejection. I don't want to be turned down for that job. I'll use this SDR that we're going to hire. We hired someone else for another SDR job about two or three months ago. He stayed in the game, stayed in the mix, graduated from college, but stayed in there, kept raising their hand. We hired him yesterday. So, you know, who cares about rejection? Who cares about any of that stuff? Just keep raising your hand. It's a numbers game. That's right. So we're here to talk about data literacy, but in the first six minutes, we've already got loads of great content here. Uh, but let's dive into data literacy. When you hear this phrase, what does it mean to you? It means a couple things. Um, I oftentimes, well, everyone on earth today, if you ask anyone in business, especially leaders, they can't wait to tell you how data informed they are. Everything they do is data driven. And oftentimes I hear that, I go, really? So it's fundamentally important. So when I hear data literacy, literacy I think about, people often think about data-driven decisions. Um, well, I caution that. I think about data-informed decisions because data-driven to me is a caution, can be a cautionary note. It's like consultants. People have hired a lot of consultants and then they often say, that's what the, if it doesn't go well, 
that's what the consultant said to do. Or in the case of data, well, that's what the data said. Well, that's why it's not necessarily data-driven in my mind. It's data-informed. And data is not only hard data, system data, whatever's in your CRM system or your employee engagement results, which are fundamentally important. We're going to talk about that. But it's also about old school. Very few people do one-on-ones across their company CEOs at every level and do it religiously. And they do it in a, in a sacred way. And especially with your direct reports, very few have absolute informal, formal, formal one-on-ones with the team every single week. And it's sacred time. That's data. And in the case of CEOs, most CEOs can't sell their own things. They do not know how to deal with customers in many cases because they're so far from it and probably didn't even start in sales. And so they look at data driven from different places. So I also make sure people understand that your, your team, that's real data, your people data, listening and having asking questions, talking to customers directly as a, whether it's a junior or a senior leader, that's real data. So a lot of different plate. We, when I grew up in marketing, so I talk about communication in terms of a marketing mix. The same thing about data. Data comes from all kinds of different places, just not your hardcore data. So long answer to your question, Andy, but it's an important one. It's there's data-driven decisions. Great. I like data-informed decisions because uh, I just think that's a healthier way to, to approach it. Also, I, I think when it comes to data, uh, data can be a crutch. It can slow decisions making down, often does, uh, rather than drives it forward. Because in the end, you got to make a call. Humans have to make a call. And data informed decisions help to give you a better chance at making the right call. Well, that description is going to be a great bridge into our next mini series, which is on decision making. So thank thank you uh, for that. What I really loved about that answer is that, uh, you know, look for the data in what in modern context, it it comes from non quote unquote, non-traditional sources. And I love the fact that thinking about your one-on-ones with your direct reports, uh, that that's date, that's a place to uh, collect. Let me give you another example. Last May, um, I was talking to someone within whatever company and I said, you know what? I think by the end, and this is about the the fact that we're in a, a more than perfect employment environment. This is last May. And everyone on earth uh, was having difficulty and still are hiring engineers and other, other, other talented individuals, especially in hospitality. And I said, by the end of 2022, it will be a more employ, employer-friendly environment. But that's not, that's not what the data says. That, that's not what the economist says. It's not what our own PE background. No, 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 no. I said, no, no, no. All you have to do is read the papers every single day, look at all the data. So many people have overhired to the pandemic this last May. And so yeah. there is hard data. You know, you do listen to the economists. You do listen to, you know, um, Dave, Jamie Diamond and others. Yeah. But then you have to watch the papers and look at the data that all around you and just say, this just makes sense. And now we're in an environment that is more employee friendly, employer friendly. And there's both good and some other consequences with it. But that's data. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Awesome. So. As a former CEO and president of both small and large companies, you've had a bird's eye view across the businesses you've run. Uh, I'd like to get your opinion on what role 
chief executives should play in improving data literacy across their organization? Sure. I'll start with, uh, we, we get in life what we inspect, not necessarily what we expect. And so the CEOs, people look to the leader of an organization, could be a CEO, could be a leader at any level, and they look for what you value. So if the CEO values real data, in my case, data-informed decisions, not necessarily data-driven, there's a subtlety there. If the senior executive is data-informed and expects um, people to, to come to him or her with, with, with sound data, um, then people will, will follow that. And so then um, one size does not fit all in terms of in an organization in terms of, in terms of data. So it's also um, the CEO's responsibility is not to uh, expect, not only expect data, but also to help to professionally develop an organization on what data-driven actually means. You can see here, what I emphasize everywhere I go is speed in terms of decision-making. At the end of everyone's career, it doesn't matter how good, how successful, how fast you were, Almost everyone says, I wish I had moved faster. So in my case, the way that I lead organization is the data should drive faster and better informed decisions, but we're not going to slow down because of data. We're going to go faster. So what's my point? Um, it's people take their cue in an organization as they should from the CEO and from the leader in the organization. So you set the bar and other people will follow that bar and will add to that bar, providing that you're hiring well and, and provide an example. So I would say that you know, it's tone from the top is everything. Yeah. So if tone from the top is everything, where should improving data literacy sit amongst the dozens of competing training priorities uh, an organization faces? Uh, in your opinion, is data literacy in the top 10 skills for the future? I'll say data literacy and, and take this with, at the outset, I talked about data-driven versus data-informed. An argument can be made that data is number one. Um, and what I mean by that, my philosophy on leadership my whole life has been talent, culture, and strategy, and capital allocation in that order. Well, um, where do you hear data in that? Well, when you're, when you're hiring, data is a big part of every single hire. And in order to be a top-performing company, you have to get your hiring right 90% of the time. In order to make your numbers, you have to be right 80% of the time. Outside of that, you don't keep your job. So in order to do that, when you look at talent, what's the data around the candidates? There's a lot of data out there around candidates, right? So um, you know, I, I really think that you know, data is an argument debate is, is number one. But it's how you use that data, not as a crutch, but to inform and drive faster decisions and more informed decisions around in many cases, the number one priority of every company is people and customers. Your customers are number one. So let's take data around customer engagement, both employee engagement, which I think is the most important metric in a company, period, full stop. And the same holds true for customer engagement. The number one source of data is so it's your employee engagement and your customer engagement. Those are number one, in my view, of the data-driven. Because you have, if you have a highly engaged employee base, and the data proves that out, there's 100% of the time, in my view, you're going to have a top-performing company. So I would say that your, your data, an argument made, is number one. Uh, but it's how you explain how you use the data. It's about how you inform hiring decisions, culture decisions, uh, strategic decisions, and also capital allocation. So I would say, number one, for me, 
based upon those four things. Awesome. Fantastic. Now let's go to the Let's go to the challenges uh, with with data. Businesses, as you've mentioned, are awash in, in data. We're all awash in data. Uh, there's a lot of talk about monetizing and leveraging to help create competitive advantage. But as you pointed out, businesses fail to do this effectively. In your assessment, what's the primary blocker for a business or institution to unlock the value of the data they're generating? Uh, the first, first thing that comes to mind is garbage in, gar- garbage out. So <laughs> as you, you mentioned, uh, I've had the good fortune and the, the greatest joy of my life has been leading large, small and large sales teams. Um, there's just something about the optimism that goes around with a, with a strong sales culture that just I find incredibly inspiring. But having said that, what I've said you know, if I had a nickel for every time I've said this, is garbage in, garbage out. So the CRM system, whether it's Salesforce or whatever people are using, a form of Slack maybe, if their data is strong, which is often input by humans, um, your the, the data is very useful for the whole organization, for product, for marketing, for customer development, all those different kinds of things. So one of the challenges with, with data is often garbage in, garbage out. But then there's also the issue of how you actually assess the data and how you build stories around data. Um, one of the most important classes that anyone can ever take in college, and the most important class, there's two courses that I've taken who are the most important, which are statistics 101 and 102, which is data, and then economics 101 and 102. Basic courses. The most the courses that I use every single day, and, and anyone who's taken those courses probably use every day as well. So it's largely garbage in, garbage out, and how well an organization professionally develops their people around data usage, what is good data, what is bad data. But largely, the one of the blockers is garbage in, garbage out. Yeah. Well, th- thank you so much for stressing that uh, statistics is uh, one of the most important uh, classes that uh, that an individual can take. It's also one of the most feared <laughs> class cl- uh, classes out there. I used to teach uh, statistics myself and know that firsthand. Uh, Brian, we're going to take a quick commercial break. Uh, and for an important message, we'll be right back. Sounds great. Thanks for listening to the Balancing Act podcast. I'm Andrew Tempty. In my book, Balancing Act, Teach, Coach, Mentor, Inspire, I explore the characteristics required of leaders who must find balance between strength and vulnerability, confidence and selflessness, passion and measure, and leadership and followership. Balancing Act is available today at Amazon.com. And we're back with Brian Kibbe talking about data literacy on the Balancing Act podcast. Uh, Brian, what have you seen work well within organizations and institutions to capture the value of the data that they have at their disposal? Any specific experiments you'd recommend to other leaders to move from the talking to the doing? Something we talked about earlier, Andy, is your customer engagement scores. So as you know, you, you and I have been in education for a long time. And oh. in my case, I've been to nearly a thousand college universities all over the world. And do those college universities, even though in many cases they do train data, they do train data scientists. They, as we talked about, they, for many um, majors, statistics 101 and 102, whatever that form is, it's a mandatory course. 
But do college universities actually use their own data? Do they actually practice what they preach? So let's go back to customer customer employee engagement scores. The best experiment that I know of uh, is I would do a a base level, a heart surgeon, excuse me, your cardiologist, and I have one because I mentioned earlier I'm a triathlete, so I'm I'm also a mild hypochondriac, so I've got my um, Dr. Asmi (laughs) Metarai, who's fabulous, on speed dial. He regrets ever giving me his cell number. Anyway. Nice. Um, but your employee engagement, let's talk about experiments. Any organization you join, whether you, you join as a CEO or whatever level, you can even do this with, if you're a district sales manager and you've got eight reps reporting to you, you do an independent employee engagement survey at any level. And that'll be your baseline, just like a cardiologist gives you a basic EKG to understand where you are. And every college university should do the same for their employee, their faculty base, and do employee engagement surveys and customer engagement surveys like it's your full-time job, like oxygen. That's the data that will tell you exactly and make sure that people understand it's anonymous. And whatever data comes forward, especially if it's directed at the CEO, will never be punished because then you'll lose the whole organization. But that's, that's where you get, in my view, Everything that you need is employee and customer engagement surveys. It's not really an experiment. It's just if you haven't done that, and most people don't because they don't want that. As we talked about earlier, raising your hand, people don't want the bad information. And so I would be curious. I don't know the stats on this. How many organizations, large and small, actually do employee engagement and customer engagement surveys? And if they do it, how do they use it? How seriously do they take it? What consequences are involved in that? So I would say an experiment would be, if you haven't done that, please do employee and customer surveys. And then whatever you get from that data, do something with that. Yeah, your, your point on doing something with it, uh, I, I've personally seen employee engagement surveys being uh you know, being being executed on, uh, but then the 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 experience comes and it goes, and nothing really happens uh, with uh, with that with that data. Uh, so, you, so uh, thank you, you take the thank data, you for that point. And as a senior leader, as a CEO, and I've done this, you take the data, and then in all staffs, right? You should have regular all staffs. Most leaders do that, and in that all staff, you give them the raw data. You give the team both the great, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And then you do it again in six months and you have to show improvement and you have to show action. And then, then everything else takes, takes off from there. So it's what you do with the data and turn and also sharing that data very transparently with the organization, even as CEO, even if, cause you're responsible for everything, even though you don't like sometimes the, the feedback that you get, share it anyway. And that goes towards That's authenticity. Right. And then you're more likely to get loyalty and retention, all those things. If you're the kind of person who will share bad news some every boss throughout time said a good one say i can do something with good news i can celebrate it i can cheer lead and all these different kinds of things but give me some bad news bad news i can really do something with that i can fix problems with that so you know i would say the experiment is employee and customer engagement surveys yeah, great. So uh, let's, uh, for the salespeople who are going to be uh, in the listener uh, set here, uh, let's run a little thought experiment. I want to tap into your deep experience in sales. So 
If you have a sales professional sitting right in front of you right now, what advice do you give to them to unlock the potential of the data they have? It's going to be a depends answer, uh, where they where their company is. It could be a startup where they may not have a lot of customer history. Uh, it can be an established company like, as you know, I worked at Pearson and McGraw-Hill and, and places like that for a long time. So uh, let's take a McGraw-Hill or a Pearson or really anyone. Uh, if it's an established company with a baseline of customers, I would say, um, are you familiar with the Pareto principle? And they would say, maybe it's the 80-20 rule, right? 80% of your results comes from 20% of your people or from 20% of your customers. I would say, actually, that's I view that's wrong. About 95% of your real value comes from 5% of your people or from 5% of your customers. So I would say to you, salesperson, focus on it's easier to grow existing customers than it is to find new ones. We have to do both. Having said that, focus on your top performing customers right now. That's where your referenceability comes from. That's where your referrals come from. You get all these different kinds of things. So salesperson, make sure that you, whatever data you look at, understand who your best customers are, why all the whys are the best customers, how did they become a great customer, how did you grow them, how do you continue to grow them, and then you can begin to mirror that with some of your customers who are not tier one, but maybe tier two, we want to move into tier 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 one, et cetera. So I would say, look at your data around your best customers. I'll use myself as an example. I'm a member of a club. I'm a premier member of that club, not because I'm so great. I use all their services. So, but no one has ever said, hey, this guy pays the premium membership. He buys drinks every single day that he's there. He uses our stretching services, our physical therapy services. He uses our master swimming classes. He uses all these different things. So at some point, look at your customers who are driving that and have a conversation if you're the general manager of a club with all those premier customers and referenceability and all the different things, you will grow your business off your top 90, 95% of your customers. So focus on your strengths is what I'm saying to a sales rep and learn from that and grow from there. Yeah, that's a fantastic. Let's uh, let's move to work readiness uh, just for a moment. You know, there's all sorts of angst about the outputs of our educational system. As someone who's played at the intersection of business and education, what advice do you have for educational leaders uh, to improve the data literacy of their graduates? I would make, there's two courses you asked about. I'm going to give you, there's two courses that I think should be mandatory starting probably in high school. One is personal finance. That's another topic. Mm -hmm. um, and the other is, is statistics or data literacy. You can call it whatever you want. Um, but right. most college universities, for nearly many of the majors, require some form of statistics course. Not all the majors, though. But you can morph that into a data literacy. You can call it a different thing to make to punch it up, but make sure that you are requiring a data literacy course, call it something that's more consumable to, to college students. What does data literacy even mean? But figure that one out and make it compulsory to graduate. It's kind of like public speaking. Public speaking for most college universities, you have to take your public speaking 101. But to survive and thrive in this world today, data literacy or statistical literacy is, is an argument to be number one, right? For, yeah. for sure. So I would say, and then I would also say college universities, practice what you preach. So over the past 13 years, enrollments have declined, 13 years plus running. So practice what you preach when you're teaching students, especially if you're at a business school. 
And are you doing regular student engagement surveys for your for your students? How are you communicating that that those surveys back to your your your, your college university students? How are you using that to drive your own excellence within your own institution? So model that behavior chancellor, provost, president, deans, et cetera. And then you're more likely going to have students who are very successful when they graduate. Model that behavior. Tone from the top. Something we talked about earlier, Andy. Tone from the top. Yep. Absolutely. Well, Brian, I'm really disappointed that our time together is coming to a close, but I'd like to learn more uh, about what you're excited about for your future. Where are you headed next? My my whole, it's nice you to ask, Andy, my whole career uh, is based upon one thing. How do I work with people to unlock their full potential? It's where I get my greatest joy. It's where I get my energy. Um, I mentioned earlier, right now I'm doing a lot of full-time consulting work outside of education and education tech, really in the transportation and energy sectors, because um, it's fascinating. And, and and frankly, it's where a lot of the change for the world and change for planet Earth is going to happen. So a lot of focus on uh, the intersection of energy and transportation and also performance coaching. And I'll do that for as long as, uh, as long as I'm, as long as I'm living. Oh, that's fantastic. And uh, before the show, you're talking about the uh, triathlons that uh, that you're training for. And I want to uh, publicly wish you all the best for what sounds like a very uh, grueling but uh, self-rewarding uh, schedule that you've got coming up in 2023. Well, it's, it's it's just a game of chess. That's all that is. But thanks for <laughs> thanks for mentioning that. That's all it is. When you're 57, you're doing triathlons. It's just a game of chess. How do I not? Break yes, yes. Uh, how do after uh, seven major joint surgeries uh, for me, tri, uh, triathlons are not in my future. But. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, uh, Brian, thanks for joining us today. My name is Andy Tempty. This is the Balancing Act podcast. Please like, subscribe, rate, share, especially this uh, show because there's so much value uh, for our our listeners here. Uh, So thank you, Brian, for joining us. And uh, everybody have a great day.